0: Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to, and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So all right. What are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one's going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April, you're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April, how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com, or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter, or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a a special bonus episode, those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes. that is really one of our favorite things to do because it it lets us work together with a a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing, but that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman.
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we're covering the story, The Mask, by Robert W. Chambers. This is the second story in Chambers' short story collection called The King in Yellow, and it was published in 1893.
0: And The Mask actually won our most recent Patreon vote, even though I spent a massive chunk of our year in review show lamenting the fact that no one ever voted for it, even though it had been on like half a dozen ballots or something like that. And this time it won by a a landslide And, and not because I complained about it, because in fact, as we're recording this, that episode hasn't even aired yet. And so we can talk about the the rest of the results for that poll as well. We're also going to cover another story by William Hope Hodgson. This will be the goddess of death. We've also got a novella by Algernon Blackwood, and this is a story featuring his famous occult detective, Dr. John Silence. That's going to be a lot of fun. And then we're going to have two newcomers to the show as well. Stephen King is making his very first appearance here on Elder Sign with Graveyard Shift. And then we're going to have a Ralph Adams Cram story. And this is one that also previously had done quite poorly in the polls.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to cover all of these. I think it'll be fun to do a Stephen King story and see what he's picking up from all of the horror writers that we've covered, which primarily have been writers that wrote in the late 19th century and first half of the 20th century. So to engage with a more contemporary writer, I think will be a lot of fun though. We have done plenty of Thomas Ligotti. So it'll be fun to put them in conversation with one another too. I'm really excited to see that. I can't wait to meet John Silence. I've not read any stories from him. We got a great slate of writers and stories coming up. I'm just real excited about it. Yeah, those first three stories
0: received a ton of votes, but there was actually after that a pretty steep drop off. So Stephen King and Ralph Adams Cram have really only just barely made it onto the show, and what that means is that just missing the cutoff was Robert E. Howard, who surprisingly has never made it onto the show via a Patreon vote, despite being one of the the Weird Tales big three. And then right behind Howard, and, and really, I should say it was only one vote each time that separated these bottom five stories. So right behind Howard was Robert Aikman and then Mr. James. Uh, we'll see how they do next time. We're going to keep those on the ballot and so that's the list. That's the, the next few months of Elder Sign here. And I think now we can turn our attention to the story at hand, The Mask, which is a uh, creepy and also a heartbreaking story. It's, it's one that I really loved.
1: I really loved this story too. And I found it fascinating just exactly what Chambers was exploring in this story. And, and we'll take up what that is in the discussion. But he basically jams together these themes of uh, the nature of love and technology's impact on art and has written this story that somehow marries these themes beautifully, though whether or not they mix is something we'll be able to talk about. But now that we've teased the story, let's just get into the actual plot.
0: Right. Well, it's going to be a while before we get into the actual plot of the story anyway, because we begin with an epigraph, just like The Repair of Reputations did. But this time it's an epigraph from Chambers' own fictional in-universe play, the king in yellow. And this is act one, scene two, and it features three characters at a masked ball. One of these characters is named only the stranger, while the other two are Camilla and Casilda. That's not confusing at all, right? And Camilla and Casilda, they remove their masks and they inform the stranger that he should take his off too, because the masked portion of the ball is, is over. And he says simply, I wear no mask. And that's horrifying, right? Because it means that this thing that looks like a mask, and and we don't actually know what it looks like, but this thing that looks like a mask is actually his face. And we've seen something like this recently, of course, right? In in Lovecraft's story, The Festival. And this story that we're doing now is called The Mask. And so I guess this epigraph here, right, this is going to alert us to be on the lookout for things that look like masks, but aren't, or maybe vice versa
1: we do get a beautiful paragraph later on in the story where the narrator talks about the nature of masks uh, and the types of masks that he wears and what's going on there. And so we'll be able to explore the function of this brief scene from The King in Yellow that Chambers provides us with before going into the story. Uh, and, and maybe we should also be looking for if there are any characters who aren't wearing a mask in this story and what Chambers is doing with a character like that. So it's a great opening. I love The King in Yellow. I wish it were a real play that we could find lying around somewhere and read. Um, but I, I also really love this epigraph to the story. And I really struggled, you know, as I was reading the story the first time to make sense of what it's doing here. But, that, but I think we'll be able to break that down and uncover why this is The Mask why this story is called the mask.
0: Yeah, I think I would love to find a copy of this play too. I think most weird fiction fans would say the necronomicon is the book, the fictional book that they would love to discover is actually real, but but not for me. For me it's always been the the king in yellow, even though I know that would be, you know, the end of me, but still <laughs> I'd like to read it once. Maybe like real late in life I'll read it once. <laughs> well, all right. Now we can actually get into the story proper. And this is a, a short story. It's much shorter than the novella that was The Repair of Reputations that leads off this story collection and it's divided into four chapters. But even though these are quite short, they are also quite dense. I'd say that there's a lot of emotional richness and a lot of real depth packed into this story. So we will be at this for a while. And this story is the first person account of a man in his early 20s named Alec. We don't ever actually get his last name, but we do know that Alec is an American living in Paris. He's a painter, and he's going to tell us a story about his friends, who are also mostly American artists living in Paris, as Chambers himself once was. And we begin in Media Rest, and the first line of the story is, "'Although I knew nothing of chemistry, I listened fascinated.'" And this would be a brave choice in today's publishing climate, I have to say, right? To begin your story with a conversation about chemistry. And a cue that this is going to involve a lot of listening to someone else's monologue but this chemistry is actually the weird element of the story and we get a demonstration of what's going on right here in the first paragraph, which is excellent storytelling. Alex interlocutor and we're going to learn who he is in just a moment but we'll we'll hold off on that We'll use the same suspense that chambers does here. So Alex interlocutor has accidentally discovered a chemical bath that will turn organic objects into marble. And what we're getting here in this opening paragraph is a demonstration with an Easter lily that's just been taken from Notre Dame. And I just want to read some of the descriptions that Chambers gives us. I mean, he's a beautiful wordsmith, so we might as well let him speak for himself here. And here's how he describes this process at work. Changing tints of orange and crimson played over the surface. And then what seemed to be a ray of pure sunlight struck through from the bottom where the lily was resting. And then here's his description of this newly marbled lily. The marble was white as snow, but in its depths, the veins of the lily were tinged with palest azure, and a faint flush lingered deep in its heart. And the discoverer of this chemical has also tried this process on a living goldfish, and that too looks amazingly lifelike. Uh, There's also a rabbit that is going to get experimented on soon, though at least at this point in the story, this idea is not presented by Chambers with any horror, and maybe that's something we'll, we'll talk about. But of course, right, with all of this buildup, we know that no good is going to come from this chemical that will turn you into marble, uh, especially in a story called The Mask.
1: Yeah, there are a number of things that come up in this scene before Chambers moves the story along a little bit. One is Alex's concern that the objects that are being put, that the organic objects, the living objects that are being put into this chemical bath are being destroyed, uh, whereas sculptor. Whereas sculpting brings uh, a lifelike object out of an inert mass, this is taking something that is alive and turning it into something that's dead. And the interlocutor's response, I'm going to spoil it now, his name is Boris, uh, he says, destroyed, preserved, how can we tell? And he also wonders what sculptor could actually even reproduce the liveliness or the lifelikeness of these objects that he's putting into this chemical bath, or alchemical bath, as they sometimes refer to it as. But we also learn in this section that Boris is an extraordinarily gifted sculptor. He has won awards for his sculptures, and he does incredible work. And so the question we're really left with, um, because Chambers doesn't introduce them as artists right away. As you mentioned, Glenn, it, it does come... The story does start in Medius res. We have to wonder why Boris is so interested in trying to find this new method for making marble sculptures rather than exercising, in exercising his talent and his skill. And his motivations are revealed here to be that he, he feels he needs to top himself. And so he was trying to find a new method or a new technique that will showcase something new when he's presenting his new sculptures to uh, an awards committee or a gallery or a show or something like that. But Boris also really recognizes the threat that this process poses to his art form. Because if this technique were to be widely used, or if the secret were to be revealed in some way, it would make sculpture and sculptors irrelevant. And this is really akin to the way that photography changed the methods and techniques of painting. And Alec comments on this in the story, or Chambers has Alec comment on this. Alec says that painters lose more than they gain by photography. And this points to this real issue that happened in the late 19th century, that the ease of which an image becomes available really changes the audience's taste. And so if something similar happened in sculpting, that happen with painting and photography, it would be catastrophic. It would be hard to imagine something like an impressionistic sculpture or what the new style of sculpting would be to appeal to an audience's tastes when the objects could be so easily obtained. But it's really important, and I and I can't emphasize this enough to 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 say that. To say that this sculpting secret that Boris has discovered is rooted in chemistry. It's rooted in the scientific method. Boris has discovered a new element. Um, and he's clearly still interested in investigating alchemy. So this overlap of kind of science and magic is at play in the story as well. Not just chemistry, but what's really important is that this, this method of using science to achieve new forms of art is what Chambers is investigating. And, and it really reminds me this whole alchemic, alchemical and chemistry bit reminds me of something I heard a few days ago or maybe just yesterday, uh, which is that technology is just magic that works. And this is really Chambers' <laughs> approach to chemistry in this story.
0: Yeah, Chambers himself went to art school here in Paris. And I guess that would have been the 1870s. So that really would have been at the time that photography was changing painting and that lots of painters maybe felt threatened by photography. And certainly people, uh, perhaps pedestrian troglodyte types of people have been saying, well, now that we have photography, what do we even need painting for? You know, and of course, the answer is, well, painting isn't just about capturing an accurate image of the thing. In fact, it's never really quite been about that at all. And it's cool to have both things. And here, the parallel with the the sculpture, of course, is much more menacing because, sure, maybe from an artistic perspective, there's this sense, well, I'm going to be out of a job if, if we can just do this and no one needs a sculptor anymore. But the difference between photography and this marbleizing chemical is that photography doesn't kill its subject, right? But this this does.
1: But horror literature is rife with stories of photography that kills subjects and so that same sort of threat is i think a part of uh the genre of the weird is the the camera obscura either the camera that captures spirits or takes the soul of a person and i think people Encountered these new technologies as maybe uh, a life-threatening sort of thing before they understood them. Oh, absolutely! And there's there's tons of that. But I just before
0: we, but before we go on, I do just want to also emphasize here that in this setup, I was being told this, and and all the the sort of suggestion that you know Boris, who is this fantastic sculptor, especially of people, has developed this process that can make marble that looks even better than his. Sculptures and now he has such a reputation that he can never possibly exceed it. And the idea here, right? The setup here is that he's driven to do exactly that. And so we at this point feel like we know exactly where this is going, especially since we already know they're experimenting on a flower. They've we've already been teased that, well, we're gonna try it on a rabbit. And obviously then he's going to do this to a person at some point because he's up against this deadline to get a sculpture in. And Chambers gives us all of this, one, just in hints, and then two, Casually, right, so we know that the characters aren 't there yet they aren 't seeing the the horrific outcome that we as readers know is going to have to be the result of this
1: right, and we really get the sense that boris is stru- that Boris is struggling with this uh, new sculpture of the fates his Subjects are often classical subjects that he's working on. And, and he's already done the Madonna and Ariadne. He's done cupids that he has all over the house. And he's done, he has all sorts of projects and, and his topic or his subject is almost always classical art. And so now he's working on the fates, but he seems to really be struggling with that as well.
0: All right. So all of that is part one of the setup, right? That's the weird element that's going on here. But we should actually meet all of these characters here because the story is going to hinge on a love triangle. And at the center of this love triangle, uh, well, center, I guess, is not, that's not actually how triangles work. I suppose, you know, we're 10 minutes into this and I'm already mixing metaphors in a very <laughs> bad way. Uh, okay. But but still, uh, not maybe at the center, but the most important character in this love triangle is Genevieve, who's a native French woman, also in her early 20s she is strikingly beautiful. And she's been a model for Alec and and his friends as well. And that seems also to be the capacity in which they've met her. But of course, Alec is in love with her, but he's on the outside looking in because Geneviève is in a relationship with the interlocutor who has discovered the marbling chemical Boris, right? And and we learn here at this point that that 20-something American artist is the sculptor Boris Yvain, who we heard about in The Repair of Reputations. And in that story, we know him as the sculptor of the fates, which decorated the suicide chamber. And we learned there that he died in Paris when he was only 23 years old. And hey, that's exactly how old he is here in the mask. So we know where this is going, if not exactly the route that it's going to take. But all of this information also lets us know that this story is taking place before the repair of reputations, but in that same world, because here we see him working on the fates.
1: I really love the way that Chambers sets up this love triangle they seem to have a casual way of talking about their love for one another. Genevieve knows that she's in love with both Alec and Boris, uh, but she likes or loves Boris more. And so Alec is, as you said, Glenn, on the outside of this. And there's this sort of bohemian casualness, as I said, to their approach to love, but it seems as though they're all very Catholic as well, or at least Genevieve is. And we're introduced to Genevieve as... Though something has changed with her, though we don't know anything about her prior to her introduction. And it's because Alec perceives a difference in her behavior towards him. There's a, there's a new sort of coldness that he perceives from her, uh, from the way that she treats him. And he doesn't know what to make of it. And she's always trying to cover it up. And so there's automatically a conflict with Genevieve that we need to resolve by the end of this story. And it's just a brilliant way to introduce a character, particularly one in a love triangle, where, where usually the conflict is between rival lovers who love the same woman. The conflict of this love triangle is really introduced as though the conflict lies entirely within Genevieve, the beloved, rather than with any of the lovers. And I just love that little subversion of the uh, trope that Chambers uses here.
0: Yeah, We're going to find out eventually that that Boris doesn't even seem to know that there's a love triangle going on. But because this is being told to us in first person through the voice of Alec, and an extremely introspective voice of Alec, we're going to learn a lot about his interiority here and see where the conflict is within him as well. I mean, you said that it lies mostly in John VF, but we do see a lot of inner turmoil in Alec, who, who wants what he wants. But also wants a lot of different things and, and realizes he can't have all of them and is having to make choices about which of the things on the menu he would like to have the most and and also deciding who he wants to be, what type of person he wants to be in this love triangle.
1: And we'll discover by the end of the story that there's also an extraordinary conflict taking place within Boris as well. I mean, they, Boris and Alec do both know that they love Jean Viev and Alec even thinks that might be the basis of their friendship. And Alec retreated as soon as Jean Viev made her choice in terms of pursuing her or courting her in any way. So Boris feels pretty secure in his position, uh, but everybody's holding something back here. But Jean Viev's mask, so to speak, is beginning to crack. As she's introduced to us as a character, right.
0: So all of that was chapter one, and so we can go onward now to chapter two, where the action is going to begin. But most of this chapter is really just a nice depiction of their quotidian life together. These these three characters and some of their other friends. Boris and Geneviève have a home on the the Rue de Saint Cecile in the, the ninth. And here, Boris and Alec, and also their friend Jack, do a fair bit of artistic work because Boris has a great sculpting studio here. Uh, and we do get some descriptions here of what what this is like and their daily habits, especially about their leisurely pipe smoking. It sounds great. And the inciting incident of the whole story here is going to conclude this chapter. One of the features of the sculpting studio here is a sunken pool in the middle of the room, and right now it is actually full of this marbling chemical. Though usually it just has water. But the reason that Boris has filled it up with the chemical is that. He wants to dunk the rabbit in and see what happens, but we are teased here with the fact that it is deep enough for a human to be completely submerged. Right, so we can bet that that is going to come back in the story. But the incident here, though, is that Boris leaves to to head to a gallery outside of Paris, and Alec stays behind, uh, enjoying a nice pipe and then has a nice nap on the the couch in the studio, I guess. And when he wakes up, it's it's dark, it's you know, sort of twilight time, and he hears some sad singing from somewhere in the house. And he walks through the house to investigate what this this singing is. I mean, this has to feel like kind of waking up inside your own dream. I think we've all had this type of experience. And when he sees a shadowy figure walking in the dark, he calls out jean And of course, it is her. But she didn't know he was here. She thought he had left with the, the rest of them. And his voice startles her and she trips over a wolf head that is still attached to a, a wolfskin rug that they have on the floor. Yeah, safety tip here in the middle of this story, I guess. But she doesn't actually trip into the pool as Chambers so clearly wants us to worry about in the few sentences that he spends describing all of this. She just trips, uh, nothing super terrible happens. So she does quite hurt her ankle. And this chapter really then ends with her asking Alec to call for her maid and then just to leave her alone. She's kind of mad about the whole thing and maybe a little mad at Alec, you know, some displaced anger there. And this is not going to end well. But right now we don't actually think that much about it. And we don't really think that much about Genevieve because really we're in Alec's head here and we kind of feel bad for him because it seems that he just can't catch a break. Even just trying to talk to Genevieve leads to this.
1: This injury. Right, and this is all very recent. We learned in the first chapter that she would always, you know, blow him a kiss hello or goodbye or invite him to stay for lunch. And now she's talking through Boris. She's embarrassed by his presence in the house when she's alone and And what Alec is really seeing is her melancholy and he's embarrassed by this as well. And when he sees that she's embarrassed because he heard her singing, he tries to cover it up and ask her if he was, and asked her if she was playing the spinet. And so you're right to say that it's just this sort of series of events where neither of them are really able to speak to each other or catch a break. He's trying to be nice to her, but she's, you know, she's fallen, and she says, get out of my house, basically, in a really <laughs> nice way. She's like, you can get the maid for me, and then you can leave. And she thought that he had gone out with Boris and Jack. And Jack's presence in this story is very curious to me. And I, and I do want to talk about what he's doing in this story in the discussion. Uh, but Boris and Jack had gone to a gallery to see Monet and Rodin. Rodin, obviously a great sculptor, and Monet was a great impressionist, one of the, one of the leading voices of the impressionist movement. And this is another example in the story that Chambers is calling to mind this conflict between technology and art or the impact of technology on art. And this is because impressionism was a style of painting that was really explored in response to the development of the photograph of the ability of a photograph to take beautiful landscapes or portraits. And it called the artist to paint their own subjective perceptions of their artistic subject rather than uh, an objective, realistic view of it. And so this is, again, a return, as I said, to this theme that Chambers is exploring. You did a great job, Gwen, I think, pointing out all the foreshadowing that Chambers <laughs> is doing in this story. There is a n- There's an enormous amount of foreshadowing taking place here. You know, As you said, Boris keeps a bathtub or like a pool full of this alchemical solution. (laughs) It just seems like a terrible idea. Uh, And you just, at this point, have to know that something bad is going to happen to one or all of our characters by the end of the story. And if you're reading this, you know, right after you read The Repair of Reputations, maybe you're wondering if the famous sculpture of the Fates is really just all of these characters that Boris has submerged or, or done something with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And all of this foreshadowing might be excessive. I I think in a less skilled writer, you would say, oh yeah, this is way excessive. You don't need to hint this strongly, this overtly at what's going on. But one of the things that Chambers is doing here so expertly is hinting at a lot of different things that might end up going wrong. And in fact, it none of them are actually going to be what ends up going wrong. So there, there is actually something of a trick that he's playing here, which is why he's doing it in such a heavy handed manner. But I will also say that because this is a horror story, I mean, he is ratcheting up the, the tension and the not horror, but the the terror, I would say here, right, where of anticipation, where we know something is going to go wrong, and we're just waiting for it to happen. I mean, this is kind of all like watching a a slasher movie, right, where you just want to shout, like, don't open that door, you know, but here it's drain that pool, you moron.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And he's really keeping us in this sort of uncanny space in this chapter, in particular, with Alec dreaming before he falls asleep, and then waking up into a sort of ghostly atmosphere uh, with all of these dangers and, I don't know, wolf rugs? I don't want a wolf rug in my house, you know? No, <laughs> that I seems before. Extra- <laughs> right, it <laughs> seems extraordinarily dangerous at yeah. this point. Uh, but this kind of ghostly singing and the uh, movements through the house and the kind of tobacco haze he's in, uh, it's just a wonderful chapter. And And you're right to point out, the first time I read this story, I thought this foreshadowing is just too much. But Chambers really changes directions in the last two chapters of the story and and we're going to get to that in just a moment.
0: Right, it is time now for chapter 3 where we're going to get the real crisis of the story here. So the next day, Alec goes to visit Boris and jean Viev to see how she's doing and he's told by Boris that jean vives ankle is merely sprained. There wasn't any real, you know, serious damage done to it or anything like that, but that for some reason she has also come down with a mysterious fever. And Boris is just distraught here while Genevieve is, is resting. He's, he's glad for the distraction that his friend's providing him. So he and Alec, they head to the sculpting room and, and Jack Scott is there too. And they finally decide to submerge the rabbit into the solution here. But Alec is disturbed at this idea, right Flowers and fish are, are one thing, but to do this to a living mammal just seems wrong to him and so he heads over to another room where he reads a book that he's selected at random and you know because we're in a short story collection called The King and Yellow that has a fictional book called The King and Yellow, the random book he's pulled from the shelf is of course. The king in yellow, which is no good. But this is actually just a tease here. All that happens in this moment is that Alec reads it for a few minutes, though those few minutes seem like ages to him. The content of the book disturbs him, and so he puts it back on the shelf. And right at the same time, right as he's putting the book back on the shelf, Boris and Jack come in with this marbleized rabbit, and we don't get much about it because also at that exact same moment, they hear a scream from Jean Vieve's room. Jack runs for the doctor while Boris and Alec rush to the side of Geneviève, and she is deep in the throes of the fever. And in this state, right, having these sort of fever dreams, fever delusions, in front of both Boris and Alec, she confesses finally that she has a romantic love for Alec as well as for Boris. Now, as you said, Brandon, we've known this already, and so has Alec, but this seems to be news to Boris here in this scene, and it, it unsettles him. It's also embarrassing and uncomfortable for, for Alec, who at least in some sense has made his peace with all of this and has been trying to be a good friend and maybe even trying to kind of not be in love with Genevieve. And even though he, he does love Genevieve back, would like to be in a relationship with her, this is not maybe how he wanted that to to work out here. And Alec is really torn, I think, in this moment between this desire he has for Geneviève, but also his deep friendship with Boris, right? They're not merely rivals for her love. They are also, you know, super best friends as well. And that, that's, that's a type of love that he feels also. He has these two very strong loves that are in conflict with each other. And so with all of that going on, when the doctor arrives, Alec quietly slips out of the house, and, but before Alec goes, we do get a great line from the doctor who says in describing Boris, he says, what ails him to wear a face like that, right? It's a, a mask of some sort that he has on, right? And this line prompts Alec to even think of The King in Yellow, which he's just been reading. And he thinks specifically of the pallid mask, which is a feature of that story.
1: I love what Alec says when he's sort of reflecting upon this and the nature of masks and his own masks that he wears. And I want to read what Alec has written down, or what Chambers has written down in Alex's voice. I think it's fantastic. Uh, Chambers writes this, the mask of self-deception was no longer a mask for me. It was a part of me. Night lifted it, laying bare the stifled truth below. But there was no one to see except myself. And when the day broke, the mask fell back again of its own accord. And I just think this is an exceptional passage that really captures Alex's struggle that he's been holding on to for two years since he lost John Viev to Boris. And really, what he's doing is it's more than putting on a brave face to face these people that he's decided to keep in his life. Because as you pointed out, Glenn, he has a genuine love for both of them. So he's relieved and disturbed by his By going home at night and being alone by himself. And Hemingway has some great stuff to say about this in The Sun Also Rises, the same sort of thing. Uh, and I think it's just a great way to portray that conflict that there's not any hypocrisy taking place here. It's just what Alec has decided to do, the way he's decided to live his life. One thing we need to point out here is that Alec has also gotten sick almost right after finishing reading The King of Yellow, or as soon as the rabbit comes out of the bath, he catches this same fever. And this section of the story is really about the masks coming off too. Uh, we learned right at the opening of the story that in her fever dreams, jean says things like, my heart is broken and I just want to die. And this is the source of the melancholy. And we know that it's recent, something has changed with her and maybe with her and Boris. And it's not just that she's in love with both Boris and Alec. Though she did choose Boris, it's almost as though she's lamenting that choice and living in the wrong world. She feels like she's made a bad choice and should have chosen Alec. And Alec is embarrassed by this, but he he doesn't want to cause any more problems. And so he and so while he's sick, while Alec is sick, and kind of thinking about what he's going to do in the state of delusion, he kind of comes up with a plan to go and see them when he gets better, and then to just ghost to leave Paris altogether. And this is in part because he's realizing how much this mask is affecting his life. But at the end of chapter three, we see Boris's real character revealed. He too had his mask. And it's that through his friendship and solidarity with Alec, he has withheld a lot of his own feelings about Geneviève's uh, love for Alec, which he thought was over two years ago. This whole thing had been resolved two years ago. So we learn that the whole trio of characters here is pretending with one another in the service of unclear ends and this is kind of Alex's revelation. He's like, why am I doing this? Who am I serving here? And and what are we trying to achieve by doing this? And as as long as the order as long as the illusion of this order was intact, they could all go about their business. But the second that illusion was broken through Jean Vieve's feverish and delirious speech, things changed and the status quo had to shift to something new.
0: Right, but the the plan is not to just end things now. He actually does want to put things back to the way that they were, the way that we have seen things at the start of the story, and then leave because what he wants is for his withdrawal from their life to not seem as if it's the result of this incident, which is going to be a a total fiction. But he wants them all to have that fiction. And this for him is a a sort of noble self-sacrifice, right? Where he wants, because he loves them both, he wants them to be happy, even if that means that there's a happiness that he doesn't get to have. In fact, maybe any happiness that he gets to have, though, you know, of course, we know he can go build a new life somewhere. And that uh, 10 years from now, he's going to look back on this and say, Wow. <laughs> there were a lot of feelings there that I just don't have. I just don't right, have right. anymore. But, you know, he's still in his early 20s. I think we've all been, maybe not in exactly this type of situation, but have had a lot of feelings, complex feelings uh, between love and, and friendship going on like this. And I think Chambers does a masterful job of, of showing us all of this here and all of this turmoil. And we think at this point, right, that there is actually some mysterious plague going around, that that maybe is going to be the, the horrific, tragic thing that's going to happen in this story. But that's not going to turn out to be the case either, because it's really only Jean-Viave and Alec who have this, this fever, this sickness. It is not even really a sickness, right? It's an affliction, right? What we're getting is that it is something that is coming from inside of them. The, the These emotions, the, the being in this love triangle is affecting them this way. It's giving them this fever. It's not affecting Boris this way. We'll maybe talk about that in the discussion. We'll talk about, about who Boris is and kind of the different dynamics of these relationships here. But there is also a weird element to Alex's time with this fever, which is something he has for quite a long time. I mean, he really does take very seriously ill here. And this weird element is really awesome. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it. And he says that these thoughts that he's, he's having during his, his fever dream here are hopelessly entangled with visions of white creatures, heavy as stone crawling about in Boris's basin, of the wolf's head on the rug, foaming and snapping at Genevieve, who lay smiling beside it. "'I thought, too, of the king in yellow "'wrapped in the fantastic colors of his tattered mantle "'and the bitter cry of Casilda. "'Not upon us, O king, not upon us!' "'Feverishly, I struggled to put it from me, "'but I saw the lake of Hali, thin and blank, "'without a ripple or wind to stir it, "'and I saw the towers of Carcosa behind the moon. "'Aldebaran, the Hyades, Alar, Hester "'glided through the cloud rifts, "'which fluttered and flapped as they passed, "'like the scalloped tatters of the king in yellow.' And this fever dream here, this fever vision, this is just about everything that we're going to get that actually connects with the yellow mythos in this story. So I'm sure we'll be deconstructing this passage in the discussion. But what matters here really for the the plot, as far as we're tracking it, is that Alec also has strange visions of people visiting him. And this includes Boris. But when he comes out of his fever, he's told that that could not possibly have been the, the case. And he's still quite weak, but he does tell Jack, who's been taking care of him, he tells Jack that he wants to see Boris. And Jack says that he, he has to wait. He's too weak to see even Boris, even his best friend just yet. So Alec convalesces for a while. He's not really seeing anyone here except Jack. And this is where he starts to think about what these next steps will be about, how he's going to put the relationships all back together and then ghost on them. But it turns out that this is not going to be possible because Boris and Janviev are both dead. And Jack has been keeping this from him. And what happened is this. The very day that Alec took ill, after the doctor had visited Genevieve, Boris went back to the studio to do some work while Genevieve was sleeping under the influence of a sedative. The doctor had given her you know, NyQuil, basically, right? But Genevieve woke up, got out of bed. She's still drugged. And here's where we get Chekhov's bath full of a marbling chemical. <laughs> uh, she falls into the the bath here, this pool, and becomes marbleized. And then she's now just lying on the ground with her hands forever over her heart. And when he found her, which was immediately Boris sort of heard this going on, when he found her, Boris killed himself. He shot himself through the, the heart. And Jack, who's the, the only one of these friends who's still in operation now with Alec also you know, having taken ill. So Jack destroyed all the traces of the chemical and even the components and the notes so that no one could ever duplicate this process again. And then he hushed up the whole business here. He he calls on the doctor to help him out. They have Boris buried, but then they tell the servants that Boris and Genevieve have simply decided to go traveling. And then there's a, a plan to gradually let it out that Boris and Geneviève are dead, but we'll never hear about the, the tragedy, the, the truth of, of their deaths here. But they are dead. Boris is dead. And there is a will from him which stipulates that Jack will take possession of their, their gallery that they have, but that Alec is going to inherit this house and the, the studio that goes with it. And- this means, of course, that he's also inheriting the petrified Geneviève, whom Jack has moved to a position that is now prostrate before Boris's sculpture of the Madonna, which also bears her, her face because she had modeled for that. This was his award-winning sculpture. And this is what brings the third chapter to a close. I have to say this, this ends on kind of a down note.
1: It, it really is a down note. It's very sad because it's not clear that Jean Viev's death was accidental. Uh it, it could be the case that she has done this on purpose as a way to resolve her own conflicts within herself. That's indicated both by the fact that neither Jack No nor Boris were witness to her. Going into the pool, but there's a, a look of real peace and calm on her face, almost as though she's posed herself uh, for this death, and and it's really sad and tragic. Jack certainly has a hard time talking about it. Jack really wears his emotions on his sleeves throughout this on his sleeve throughout this story. Boris, though, has sculpted one of the faces of the Fates somehow to look exactly like himself at this moment of anguish when he hears Jean Viev confess her love for Alec. And Jack finds this to be extraordinarily mysterious, knowing what it takes to sculpt a face out of marble. And so this is maybe a question of uh, what's going on. How did Boris do this? How did he capture this expression without you know, say a mirror or a photograph or, or anything like that, because it's an expression nobody had seen Boris have before. It almost looked like a mask to to people who experienced it uh, after Jean Viev's confession. So really two thirds of this love triangle have responded to uh this difficulty, this challenge, this change in status quo with suicide, and Alec is kind of too sick to do anything, though who knows if he were well, what kind of activity he would get up to.
0: Right, and, and and something that we actually haven't mentioned is that, of course, there are three fates in Greek and Roman mythology. Right, there are three of them, and so the the number three is super significant here in all of these all of these different ways. And I'm left here in this story wondering if that third member of the the fates doesn't actually bear Alex's face, though we don't get that explained to us here in in this story. But we do still have a little bit left to do here, so let's get on to, to chapter four, which is the the conclusion, and we can be a little quicker about this chapter here. So. Alec just cannot deal with all of this tragedy. And so he decides to travel eastward, going all the way to India. But he does keep in touch with Jack while he's traveling. And we come to realize that Jack is also greatly disturbed by all of this. And in particular, he's really shaken up by Alec's memory of Boris visiting him while he was sick, even though Boris was already dead. I mean, this is just the fever, but but Jack somehow seems to really think that there's something more significant, that there's something more going on there. And he just can't shake this feeling of dread that he has. And he's even having terrible, terrible nightmares. And so he, he summons Alec back to, to Paris. And I, I can't really maybe even imagine having nightmares so terrible that I have to write to somebody and have them come back from halfway around the world. But Alec gets the summons and he, he honors it. He comes back. So back at the house in Paris now, almost exactly two years later, the maid complains to Alec that someone is playing tricks on her. The marble goldfish has been replaced with a real goldfish. And someone has also taken the marble rabbit and replaced it with a real rabbit, right? She thinks someone is gaslighting her basically, but that's not what's going on. Of course, right, we know exactly what's happening here, even if the maid and, and also Alec don't. But it does dawn on Alec finally here, and he rushes into the studio just in time to find Geneviève alive and well, opening her sleepy eyes. Because it turns out that this marbleization process was only temporary. It just lasts for two years exactly. And that image is the end of the story here.
1: On the day that Geneviève awakes, Alec gets a letter from Jack, a mad rambling letter, telling him uh, that... He has to stay and not leave the house. That Alec has to stay in the house until Jack returns, and he can't tell him why. This is obviously a scrawled letter. Jack has had some dreams, and he can't explain anything. But he he needs Alec to stay in the house. And Jack is really in a, in a kind of almost ecstasy here. He's he's ecstatic, and could be explained by the possibility that he's stolen or taken a piece of this marble, this life form, this organic material that's been turned into marble and, and witnessed it come back to life, or these dreams are so overpowering and so overwhelming. And he's disturbed uh, by the fact that he was witness and in the house to both of his friends' suicide. And and then Alec just bails. And then he t- he's taking care of his other sick friend, and that friend leaves. Jack... This story from Jack's perspective is a really, really different story than the one we get from Alex, Um, because Alec is just really caught up in this sort of like grief of romantic love, but Jack is experiencing just death and uh, illness and really, really distressing things. Maybe he stole a copy of The King in Yellow from the house and has been just <laughs> reading that way too much too. So there's just kind of a lot going on at the end of the story that that pertains to Jack. But I, I want to return out to the way that the story actually ends. And I really love the way this story ends. One thing that happens is Alec builds up the courage to go into the room where the Madonna and Jean are, and he gives her a kiss and notices that There's kind of more of a reddish hue coming through her clothes, and... This is a real shift in tone to almost like a fairy tale story, the imagery here, the the, the statue come to life. And I just love what Chambers does here at the last act of the story. He moves us through a lot of time, shifts the tone of the story to something kind of beautiful, these friends reconnecting, the hope of recovery for Jack. Jack and Alec are still making art. They're staying in touch with one another. And though Jack is in really bad shape, Alec does respond to his summons. And then... Alec comes home and the lovers are reunited too. And I I just think it's kind of a beautiful way to end this story, but it doesn't really end the way it started, or it doesn't end by picking up or resolving any of the themes that started the story. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about in the discussion. There are really just three major topics I'd I'd like to consider within the story so we can evaluate how well everything hangs together. Narratively speaking, you and I both love this story, but it's worth investigating what Chambers has put together and how it works so well, because it's just an odd amalgam of ideas that he's playing with that make this story what it is. The two major themes of the story, is, as we've mentioned before, is the impact of technological progress on art and the nature of love and romantic love. But we also need to think about the presence of the King in Yellow, the play in this story, and why it's even here. But the first thing I really want to talk about is the this Is this way that Chambers investigates the impact of technology and technological progress on art? So, Glenn, I just want to ask you what examples you see of this in the story, and why is the first half of the story caught up in the development of this theme, even making allusions to artists who have responded to this type of problem?
0: Right the, the first thing that we should say is is to just to remind people that we are talking about a story that's written in the 1890s but that does seem to be Chambers reflecting on his own experiences of the 1870s but in either case this is a generation or maybe even two generations prior to the fictional 1920s near future 1920s of the repair of reputations but whether we're thinking here of the real 1890s or the real 1870s We are dealing with the process of the second industrial revolution, the one really where steel comes to to dominate the the world. And and of course we are living in a world largely made by steel. I don't know, maybe we're living in a world largely made by plastic, it feels like these days. But that there are all sorts of technological changes going on throughout the 19th century that are affecting so much about people's lives. And we can go all the way back to the very first story we ever covered here on Elder Sign, the the murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe to, you know, have a big discussion of, of that process kind of writ large. But art is not immune to this, right? We talked already about photography being a technological replacement for painting, right? That you can take a a photograph of something or someone that is a, a realistic representation of that thing or that person in a fraction of the time, even with 19th century camera technology, a fraction of the time that a painting takes. And so if you're thinking about painting as a way of capturing a real image, preserving a real image, then a camera is a labor saving device and you don't need painting anymore. But that relegates painting to something other than art, right? And, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about that. But the comparison here with maybe finding a labor-saving device to make realistic sculptures is is going on here in the story. I mean, that's kind of the centerpiece of the story. So that's the real big one. But there are other ways that we see technological change happening in this story. For one, this is a story about Americans living on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, This is something that is rendered a lot easier and a lot Cheaper to do because of the industrial revolution, because of technology. Uh, Jack and Alec are able to keep in touch when Alec uses that same technology to go to India. They're able to keep in touch via the the telegraph, right? This kind of magical far distance communications device, right? But I'd also say that even though he's never really quite named uh, uh, the doctor character in this story also plays a pretty big role, right? Especially if we believe that Jean Viev's death was an accident that it was a result of this of this drug that he's given her, this you know. Uh, weird fiction, Nyquil. I guess that he's he's given her, but he also has a big role to play in covering up the the death and and so on. I guess as a sort of person who signs death certificates or, or something like that. But this idea that a doctor would be so involved in in all of this is is really a feature of modernity. It's a feature of industrial society and the sort of uh, mass production of of medicine and sort of new gains in science and and so on. And so I don't know. Those are some of the ways that I see technology and and science kind of crashing into older ways of doing things here in the story. But maybe you've got a couple other examples.
1: No, I think you pretty much covered it. And you really brought out a lot of the way that that technology and technological progress have impacted the people's... that have impacted the main characters' lives in this story. I wonder if you think Chambers is being critical of technological progress here, not only as it pertains to art, but also perhaps the dangers of such progress, but at the same time celebrating it. Is he... Uh, whoop somebody that we might call like a, a progressivist today—is he excited by this progressivism uh, of the ability for technology to kind of iterate on itself for its own sake, or does he see a real conflict in in the way that technology has negatively impacted maybe some of what he loves about the world, while giving his characters access to a much larger world at the same time?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think we're going to see this theme in some of the other stories in the collection. And this will be, I think, a really good question to keep track of as we go through that. Because even just as you were asking me this question, I immediately started going back to the first story in the collection, back to the repair of reputations to think about this. And I think my sense of this is that Chambers is probably extremely culturally conservative. I don't mean reactionary. I don't mean right wing politically, but I mean that he has a sense of what the world is, and he wants it to stay that way. The Repair of Reputations right then is this near future story. We posited, I think mostly that it was a dystopia, though I'm not sure that we've ever really quite had that question answered. But I still feel like that was a dystopic vision for him. This idea there, right, that uh, we can use technology to more easily let people kill themselves is a big part of the story there. But then other types of change, other types of things that lots of people would identify as progress, right? If the efficiency of the the state and so on that colors that story are presented there as a a dystopia. And so I I have to think in general that Chambers is Done needing new devices, new technologies in his life, that he thinks the world is pretty good the way it is, and we don't need all of that new stuff, that we can just enjoy the things that we have now, that the world the way it is now, or maybe even the world the way it was 20 years ago, was, you know, the way the world should be. I guess I get that. I feel that way about the 1990s, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel that way about the 1990s. Certainly an all right time to be a kid or like a teenager, you know? Yeah, this. This theme of technology is is certainly on Chambers' mind as he's writing these stories, and, and I can't wait to see how he investigates this more deeply through the through the whole collection. I do think it's a little strange that, that this technological process, the scientific process that turns organic material into dead material, also wears off. And so Chambers might be exploring the idea that, that the the kind of shift in the status quo that this technology creates also creates a new normal that people can return to. And I, and I think you're right to point out that he is wary and, and probably culturally conservative. He probably sees extraordinarily extraordinary value in artistic talent and the ability for people to express that and be paid well for it uh, through a patronage system or art galleries or whatever. Um, but at the same time, uh, recognizes that maybe you can't stop what's coming and wants to explore maybe a more optimistic side of that rather than just a purely pessimistic side. Uh, and I think in just a few moments, we'll be talking about what Jack's role is in this story and, and what he's doing, whether he's a casualty of this type of progress, both maybe through uh, social situations and technology.
0: Yeah. One more thing that I, I've thought about here and thinking about chambers is conservatism and especially as it relates to art and technology is that we do get here right as you pointed out mentioned in the story Rodin and monet who are modernists right who are people who are reacting to technological change and uh, and taking art then in a different direction now that we have technologies that can do realism they're moving away from realism but the I don't know, hero probably is not the right word but well let's just say boris right here they're the sculptor uh, Extraordinaire of this story is someone who clearly is sculpting in a neoclassical style, a style that actually would have been a little bit old fashioned, actually, at the time that Chambers is is writing this story, but that is realism, is a type of, of realism, a very artful, elegant type of realism, but that is not modernism, right? And so even there, we're seeing the art that is being the most extolled in this story is Uh, an art that is only possible because it hasn't been superseded by some type of technology that sculpture hasn't had yet to, uh, to react against some other technology that can do what sculpture does more efficiently.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. I want to move on now to the second idea that Chambers is really exploring in this story, and that's the nature of love of many kinds and social masks. Why do you think it's important for Alec to maintain his position within the lives of of Genevieve and Boris. Why does he have to put on and discard his mask every day? And what masks do you see other characters wearing? And why do you think it becomes so untenable for them to keep them on?
0: Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about Alec first, right? The narrator, super conflicted in an extraordinarily emotionally difficult spot here. But thinking about why does he stick around, right? Okay. You, you fall in love with someone. Uh, turns out she maybe is actually in love with you a little bit, but she's even more in love with your best friend. So your options are stay or go. And you choose stay, even though in order to have the life that you want to have here, you have to put on this mask. You have to fake not being as hurt as you actually are. I, you know, I think I would probably walk away from this situation except He's an artist living in Paris with friends who clearly, I I, I think anyway, are wealthier than him and they take care of him a little bit, or maybe Boris might just be the the wealthy one here, but that this is a good life if you want to be a a non-starving bohemian artist in American, in Paris, right? So there's a lot more at stake for him if he walks away than just that. There's this whole lifestyle and whole identity that is wrapped up in being here in Paris and being a part of that community. But also, I think we can envision here, right? That this is a person who says, Yes, I've fallen in love with Jean Viev, and that love is in some way getting in the way of my friendship, my very important friendship with with Boris. I want that friendship still in my life. I don't want that to become a victim of this love. And, and thinking maybe of love here is almost something that's not a choice for us, right? It's something that happens to us. I mean, I think given that we're dealing with love causing fevers in this story, that we can see love as actually kind of an unwanted affliction here in this story. And so he's trying to overcome it, right? He's just trying to get over it. He's saying, I want my friendship with Boris, I will be friends with Jean Geneviève if that's all I can have. And if I stick around long enough, maybe this affliction will leave me eventually if I can just hold on one day at a time. And in the meantime, I'll just keep putting that mask on until either I don't need the mask anymore or the mask becomes... Permanent and it becomes maybe a true mask of self-deception, such that he doesn't even know he's wearing the mask anymore. That's not what works, but I can see the rationalization that he would, uh, you know, be going through in his head every time he's walking home to his own apartment from their house in the ninth every day.
1: It certainly seems as though Alec is remaining in this situation. I think because he feels that the the sorts of loves that he has for the various people in this story are better for him to exercise or restrain himself from than the types of negative experiences that he has. He certainly loves Boris as a, as a friend. Uh, he loves jean Vieve. Uh He cares about their relationship and their well-being. But the problem is they're all sort of pretending in these, in these different ways. Boris's core community seems to be that of other artists. The mask he has to wear is likely rooted in his need to top himself to get affirmation, uh, admiration from other great sculptors or cr- critics of art. Um, but Alec doesn't really have that sort of community. He's just a painter and he can sell his paintings, but he's not really uh, renowned in any way. Jack seems to be the same way. And Jalviev is a model uh, for their art. So Boris is almost having to pretend that he's maybe less than what he is as a great artist when he's around Alec and Jack and uh, Jean Vieve. And he's in this community for social obligations. He gets some benefit from it, maybe because he's the best artist of them all. And he's clearly a genius because he's invented a new method of sculpting. He's discovered a new element. He's really, objectively speaking, probably the best of them, and maybe gets a lot of benefit from, from hanging around with these other artists who maybe aren't as ingenious as he is. Why do you think it becomes so unbearable or untenable for Geneviève for to remain at this sort of masquerade that they're all participating in without acknowledging? Why is she the one who breaks first?
0: Yeah, that's another great question. There's a lot going on in her character that Chambers does not spell out for us because we're just in the head of Alec and Alec is not thinking about these things. She is actually a little bit younger than... Everyone else, I mean, she's 20. The other guys all seem to be about 23 or 24, which, you know, that's 20% difference when you're dealing with those ages so that might be something it might be something here that because she's a woman that might be the way that chambers is thinking chambers of course principally a, a writer of romances it may also be something that she's french rather than american which the the rest of these guys are but it also may be that she's catholic which is something that she clearly is and the rest of these guys clearly are are not at least if we can uh, think about their religious identities etymologically by their their last names so all of those things might be at play here but i think what but i think the thing that really stands out to me here is the way that she's connected with everyone versus the way Alec is connected with everyone, which is just to say that Geneviève is only connected with them because they have romantic love for her, whereas Alec has kind of this double bond, right? He's in this group because he's friends with all these people, and also because he's hanging around Jean He's got two ties, two types of ties, in fact. Whereas she has only only one, and so she has less maybe to to grab onto. I'm mixing metaphors here again, right? But she has, she does. She, I think she has less to hold onto in the in this group, and there's sort of maybe sort of more weighing down on her I, I don't know I don't have maybe a great sense of that what do, what do you think
1: I think that's actually a really excellent point that she doesn't have those multiple uh, bonds formed and if this is her kind of primary community assuming she just goes to like morning mass and is not there's not really like a Catholic community to participate in strictly speaking that just having that one layer that one mask to wear instead of multiple masks maybe it, it's it, it becomes more unbearable for her i do I do want to ask you what you think Jack's role is in the exploration of these different types of loves and and the nature of social masks in this story that Chambers uh, is exploring. Yeah, I find Jack
0: super fascinating in this story. And- there was a part of me that even wondered, maybe wished that the story had been written by Jack. At some point, maybe about halfway through my second read of this story, I started to think that Jack is Chambers, that like there is something autobiographical going on here about Chambers' own time in Paris, but that he's not the narrator of the story, that I don't think Chambers was Alec in this story, but that maybe he was Jack and observed something like this, something akin to this. I mean, probably without the marble and chemical and all the suicides and stuff, but something akin to this, a love triangle um, from uh, outside of it. And I had to start to wonder what this story would be like if Jack had been the one to write it rather than Alec. I suppose it wouldn't maybe be about uh, the mask of self-deception if he had done that. But what I find so fascinating about Jack is that he clearly is the caretaker of this entire group, right? You talked just a moment ago about why Boris even. Has this friend group when he clearly is at least one rung ahead of them on the 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 ladder of artistic genius and and maybe several rungs ahead of them that he is really the brilliant artist and they're good at what they do they can make a living at it but they're not their work is not going to live on the way that we know that Boris's work famously lives on that he in fact is famous even a generation or two later back in America people know who sculpted the fates and they know his story and so on they're not going to have that but Jack seems to be a real caretaker here. He seems to be the person who is actually carrying a lot of the emotional burden for all of these people that he cares for Alec when he's sick. Uh, He takes care of the whole mess with Boris and John Viev, thinks about their reputations. or Maybe it is Boris's reputation, but is thinking about Boris's reputation and wants to cover up the suicide so that it won't negatively affect his, his fame negatively affect his memory, that he, he's ministering to them in some way. And he seems to be the real heart actually of this friend group, though we don't get much about him because Alec doesn't care because, uh, about that part of the story because it's, he's not writing a story about the friend group. He's writing a story about the love triangle that is one component of this friend group. I don't know. What were your thoughts about Jack's role in the story?
1: It's a very strange position that Jack is in in the story, as as you've pointed out. He's not the narrator, but he's sort of the core of the group, as you said. It's written by Alec. And I just wonder, on one level, like why Jack is in this story at all. Everything that happens in the story could be accomplished without Jack's presence. So narratively speaking, it's it almost seems excessive to have Jack as a character in this story. I mean, Boris could be uh, a type of character who, when Alec and when Alec falls asleep and he's in the house alone with jean Viev, Boris could just be out being a sort of heel of a kind or, or a, uh out at the bar or at a brothel or something like that, and we could get a sense of the brokenness of Genevieve's and Boris's relationship. That's not really a part of the story. Alec could return home after having dealt with his uh, grief after two years and finally face what he needs to to return home. But Alec really drives the meaningful action of the story. He's present at the suicide of both Boris and Genevieve. I know you're not convinced that's a suicide. I sort of am. <laughs> um, and this is another type of maybe love that Chambers is exploring in this story. And that is a love that doesn't need to wear a mask. He can care for all these people. He's the most emotional. He's the most affected by the tragedy that is this story. And I think he's not at the masquerade, so to speak. He's present, but he's not wearing a mask. He's gone unmasked. And I think that Chambers... Has added the character of Jack, maybe because there is some autobiographical flair here, uh, but also to show us a character who isn't at the ball, but is still a part of the world. Because the masks are really clearly a metaphor in this story. <laughs> so uh, I'm struggling to come up with with something that doesn't speak in pure terms of metaphor. But but Jack is here to demonstrate a, a different sort of. Love that doesn't require these sort of social masks.
0: No, I think that's a brilliant understanding of of who Jack is here, right? And, and part of what makes him the excellent caregiver that he is is that he's not wearing a mask. He's not hiding anything about him. He wears his his feelings on his sleeve. He's unmasked. He's never had a mask. I guess maybe in some way he's kind of the stranger of the of the the epigraph. Though I also don't think people you know think his actual face is horrifying. We don't get anything like that in the story. <laughs> but that's where he contrasts with with Alec, who is also has a lot of feelings a lot of love for people but is having to put on a mask because of those feelings that he's he's his caretaking is in some way actually a mask which is contrasted with with jacks and i think that's a brilliant storytelling device though i do still wonder what this story would have looked like from jack's perspective i don't know maybe that's a writing prompt we can we can throw out to 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 listeners that because I, I would love to see what that would look like
1: I think thinking about this story from Jack's perspective, uh, you might not end up in the same place that this story does. But man, what a great way to get started on a story prompt for an idea. It's it's awesome because Jack is the most important character in this story <laughs> and the most underwritten.
0: Yeah, there'd be a lot more about how to how to cover up a suicide and forge uh, medical documents <laughs> in, in 19th century Paris yeah. as well. I'd read that story.
1: Yeah, it would be pretty great. Uh, I, I want to ask you now, whether or not you think that the the themes of the nature of love and social masks and, you know, be, thinking of life as a masquerade and the theme of technology, of the impact of technology on art really play together, whether or not they play together at all in this story and how Chambers has pulled this off if they don't.
0: Well, I think the way that these two themes work together, function together in the story is that... The the masks are necessary, especially Alex mask is necessary because this is his community. He can't really have another community here in Paris because this is the artistic community of Paris. And he's isolated. I mean, he's an American living abroad, again, possible because of the Industrial Revolution, possible because of technological change. And because of that situation that he finds himself in, he's also got to then put on this mask. That's where I see them. Them working together here. But I don't know that the two ideas, to, to my mind anyway, really reinforce each other thematically. But I also don't think that they conflict with each other in any particular way. But I suspect that you might have a reading that can tie them together here.
1: I don't know if I have a, a strong reading that ties them together. Well, I think you put it excellently that, that the themes don't really reinforce each other, but neither do they conflict. Rather, it's uh, a question of context, using a theme to develop a context, and using a theme to tell the human story in that context. And to me, that was really a a brilliant technique that Chambers is doing in this story. Often in genre fiction, themes reinforce one another in order to make the context of the story and the world of the story something that is necessary for the protagonist. To understand or overcome or change in themselves or in the world in order for the world to be made right, rather in this story, Chambers has taken sort of a, a classic trope of literature, going you know back at as far as the King Arthur stories, <laughs> using the name Geneviève to even call to mind Guinevere in a lot of ways, and has put that in a context of a world in transformation and maybe on some levels is looking at a a bohemian attitude towards love that is part of this moral change that's taking place in response to uh, how technology is changing art. Everybody's responding to something and reacting to something rather than uh, living as a, a sort of true expression. And maybe he's even being critical of the art scene in general. Uh, and the sort of moral charades that people are playing in the, you know, 1890s in France as well.
0: Yeah, there has to be a whole reading of this story that takes into account the Arthurianness of it. We actually did point out when we did the repair of reputations, and we were talking about about names that Boris Evain. The Evain part of this is that uh, is from Arthurian stories. This is one of the Knights of the the Round Table. Boris also means wolf, and there is something going on here with the the wolf of Boris's name and the wolf's head of the the carpet. But then, yeah, Alec and I, I'm not quite sure who Alec is meant to represent here. But you know, there's maybe some sense that some of the letters in the name. Could maybe make you think of Lancelot if you wanted to do something like that, or you know maybe Lancelot du Lac, and we have Alec here, something like that. But definitely, right there's a classic love triangle involving Guinevere, which is maybe etymologically related to, to Jean in some way that the Chambers definitely has in mind here. I mean that is the model of romance, and this is a romance story, and you know that's medieval French literature. This is taking place in France. Chambers loves French literature, for sure. So yeah, something is going
1: on there. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if he's just sort of tired uh, on some level of the masquerade in general and saying, like, everybody knows everybody's doing these things. Why do we insist on wearing these masks? And why do we fear the one who who doesn't wear the mask? Uh, though Jack isn't feared in this story, I think he's certainly he certainly doesn't put people at ease, especially when he's kind of going crazy as everybody else's masks come off. Uh, There's a lot going on in this story that we haven't explored, but I think there's one more topic we have to touch on before signing off here, and that is why this is even in the (laughs) collection of The King in Yellow. I mean, yes, we have the epigraph, and there's this bit with with Alec reading The King in Yellow and how it plays into all these people's visions and dreams, but this story would function without it. What's your take, Glenn, on why this Story is in the King and Yellow collection.
0: Yeah, I've been really looking forward to to tackling this question as we've been, you know, getting ready to do this episode this week. Before we tackle that, though, I do want to say one more thing about the Arthurianness of this, because it somehow only just occurred to me while we're having this conversation, which is that this story, both parts of the story, the deaths and then the uh, thawing out, the demarbling, I guess, which happens exactly two years later, it's all happening at Easter. And the first thing that we see get marbleized is a an Easter lily that has been plucked from Notre Dame from a, a Christian church. Chambers is doing something with that too. That's a conversation maybe we can we can kick to the forum.
1: yeah, not to mention the fact that a uh, Jean Viev is a model for Madonna and that Madonna's looking over her. Uh, there, there's a lot going on here. We didn't even mention that she also modeled for Ariadne. Uh, there's just way too much going on in this story. It's so dense and beautifully written. I, I hope that we've gotten to get people to pick up a copy of The King in Yellow. This whole collection is also free on the Project Gutenberg online if you're curious about it. And it's a pretty pretty short story, but very good, as I hope we've convinced you but why is it in The King in Yellow, Glenn? (laughs) Right. So because The King in
0: Yellow appears in this story, and because up to this point, having read The Repair of Reputations, what we know about The King in Yellow is that if you read it, you go insane. And this is a story narrated to us by someone who has read The King in Yellow. And it's about this crazy thing, this chemical that turns people into marble, except only temporarily. And then people are kind of resurrected or thawed out from it. And also, by the way, the narrator here ends up with the woman he's in love with, with his rival for her love, dead. So there's a sense here in which maybe we might wonder if anything in this story is true, that if maybe what we're actually reading is the story from a narrator who did in fact read The King in Yellow, went mad in the way that we saw Castain go mad in the Repair of Reputations, and and by which I mean go mad in a homicidal way, start killing to get what he wanted, in also a love triangle. That if the deaths here, the death of Boris Yvain here is not a suicide in response to Jean vievres death, but is in fact because Alec murdered him and that this is all a delusion that we're getting.
1: That would certainly account for some of Jack's own sense of madness about what's going on. Maybe what Alec perceives as Jack being ecstatic and freaked out and having all these issues is the fact that if Alec saw Boris the day Boris died or around that time, uh and then Alec fled as soon as he got better, we do know that Jack is is present after these suicides of, of, of Genevieve and Boris, but he didn't witness Boris shoot himself in the heart and all of these things that maybe Jack is also in this story because he's put pieces together like a detective because certain things don't fit in Alec's own narrative of his illness. Um, we do also see Alec fall ill right after he reads The King in Yellow. He gets a fever. He's only read it for a few minutes and he gets ill, but you know, that's another way to look at this story from, from Jack's position is kind of the, the friend who uncovers one of his friends going mad and murdering. His other friend,
0: and we know that there is singing in the play, The King and Yellow. There's something called Casilda's song. We don't ever know what is the sad song that Jean is singing when Alec wakes up. So, is it possible she also has been reading The King and Yellow? I mean, they have a copy of it in their house. Why is it there if people haven't been reading it? Uh, Boris doesn't seem to have gone insane. He doesn't seem to have been affected by it. But this whole story is about how Jean starts to have a kind of breakdown. So, possibly that is what's going on behind the, the scenes here. There are a lot of layers to this story lot of ways to to read the truthfulness of any of these uh, events, right? It's not even just sort of two sides of a coin or a black and white issue. There are gradations here. So many ways you could interpret what's actually going on.
1: Yeah. And in the same way that this story brought clarity to a small element of Repair of Reputations, we may find that other uh, stories in the King and Yellow collection bring clarity to this story, but we'll have to wait to find out. And so on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha,
0: And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
1: Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of The Mask. There's a lot we didn't cover in this story and a lot we did. We'd love to hear your thoughts and engage with you on this really fantastic and somewhat challenging story.
0: Yeah, please take us up on our call to write some some fiction here about this story. I think there's at least two suggestions for ways you could go. And of course, you'll have your own. We would love to read those. And if you would like to vote in our bi-monthly polls to choose what we cover on the show, please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. There's also dozens of bonus episodes up there too. Next time, we'll be back with The Goddess of Death by William Hope Hodgson. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.